Hello, and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Carrie. And I'm Tanya. We're both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over an ice cold brew of coffee. This is episode number 94. Today, we continue our 2021 Summer Book Club by discussing chapters seven and eight of Culturally Responsive Teaching in Music Education, From Understanding to Application by Vicki R. Lind and Constance L. McCoy. We'll also be playing some summer fun games, and in our CODA section, we'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things we are enjoying during our summer break. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. All right, so it is going to be our last summer fun game for this summer because summer's almost done. So oh, no more fun. No more fun. <laughs> so instead of our usual highs and lows, we've been doing some fun quizzes because, you know, highs and lows of summer break is not very interesting. So anyways, um, it's my turn to choose. And guess what? BuzzFeed quizzes are my friend because I don't want to have to come up with a quiz when someone else already has. Yes. So this one is called In Honor of Back to School Time, Which Famous Fictional Teacher Are You? Oh. Hmm. All right. Are you ready, Tanya? Sure. Okay. There's six choices to every question, just so you know how many to pay attention to. Okay. What subject would you teach? Math, English, science, literature, chemistry, or music? I think I'll go with music. Oh, good choice. Okay. All right. On the first day of school, you dot, 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 jump right into class material. Play a movie. Ask your students for their food. Rip up the syllabus. Go on a field trip or embarrass yourself in front of the class? Ooh, I think I'll go with, um, uh, let's go with embarrass yourself in front of the class. <laughs> that would be likely for me. All right, D don't be offended by this one, everyone. It's just a fun quiz. What kind of students irritate you? <laughs> All of them? The ones who don't follow their dreams, know-it-alls, teacher's pets, the lazy smart ones, the ones that don't want to learn. Oh, that is sad. I know, I know. So sad. I know. They're all so sad. <laughs> um, well, you can choose all of them, but I think that means like all of your students. Not no, I'll go with lazy smart ones because that resembles my family, my, <laughs> my whole family. <laughs> all right. Your teaching motto is? Stick it to the man. Take chances, make mistakes, and get messy. I don't need a blackboard or classroom to set an example. I'm a pusher. I push people. Carpe diem or always? Always. Well, wow. Kind of gives you're a severance snake. Well, yeah, I think it's all of these are referring to specific. Well, I know, but but the whole he never used that in the classroom proper. I know that Don't wasn't his. That hard. was his life pedagogy, not his like classroom. But he didn't show the always. Never mind. You're thinking uh, too hard. I'm thinking too hard. Um, I don't know. Let's let's carpe diem. Nice. If you weren't teaching, you would be a guidance counselor a poet, an actor, a wizard, a musician, or I'd still be a teacher? Uh, well, I'm a rock star, so let's go with musician. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Your essential classroom item is a potions list, <laughs> a guitar, chalk, a book, a key to the school bus, or a DVD player. A DVD. What's a DVD player? What's a DVD player? Uh, let's go with the guitar because that actually is, you know, right there. Yeah. How would you respond to a question you can't answer? Admit you don't always know the answer. Ask them what they think the answer is. Pretend you know the answer. Explain it's not covered on the syllabus. Sigh and glare at them. <laughs> or take them on a field trip and find the answer. Oh, let's go on a field trip and find the answer, kids. I love it. 
What's your approach to discipline? Have a big assembly. Talk it out. <laughs> Detention. I just don't care. Help them learn from their failures or a field trip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I just don't know how serious to take all this. Um, <laughs> let's help them learn from their learn from their failures they supposed failures yeah why are you a teacher oh this is sweet to help students tap into their creativity to help students reach their full potential my students inspire me it pays the bills yeah right i like power quite a bit it's <laughs> rewarding to watch students learn <laughs> Uh, what was the second one to help reach their potential? Their, yeah, help students reach their potential. Well, let's go with that. Okay. Are you ready for your results? <gasps> you are Dewey Finn from School of Rock. Of course I am. You may not enjoy teaching at first, but you'll slowly grow to like it. You are a huge fan of music and believe in its power to broaden the mind. Oh, very nice, Tanya. That was lovely. Cool. All right. So these this is our conversation about the last two chapters of our culturally responsive teaching and music education uh, book. And so right now we're talking about chapter seven, which really discusses about how music teachers can partner with community and strengthen the outside the school community as well as the school community and bring in people of expertise. And um, there's a lot of emphasis on partnerships, but even like one-on-one -on -one between students and outside community members. And all of these, I really enjoy these vignettes about like specific scenarios, but um, Carrie, as I was reading this, I kept trying to put myself there like, okay, well, from what I know about the community, my community, one of my communities where I teach in, like, what would that look like? And I'm, I guess I don't know enough about my community because I don't know, I was really struck by the story of the teacher who uh, the students were really interested in mariachi. And he was like, well, I don't know anything about mariachi, but I happen to have a friend. Yeah. And I thought, how handy. I don't have a friend. <laughs> Phone a friend. I have no friends. I um, mean, you, you probably do. I well, mean, okay. So it, there was twofold that I had issues with that. Because number one is like, okay, I don't have a friend. I mean, who's to say I have a specific friend that specializes in music that would be meaningful to the community that I teach in, right? Uh -huh. And then secondly, and this was brought up in this past year when we, you and I and some people from our district read the Juliet Hess book. Mm -hmm. And this idea of culture bearers. And that was um, music for social justice. Yes, it? music for social justice. And so she brings up the idea of culture bearers as something that maybe we need to redefine and rethink because we're putting an expectation on certain members of our community because they have expertise in a certain area. Like we're, we're it's this whole um, thing of, okay, so we not, might not be specialists in mariachi. So you find a culture bearer and that person um, helps. And I, I guess the, the big takeaway was that, well, first of all, people should be compensated for their time and their labor, of course. Mm -hmm. But also, I, and I'm really summarizing a lot from Juliet Hess, like, you know, there's no, no one is a, um, a monolith. A monolith, a complete representation of the culture that they are sharing, right? right. And that by, I don't, maybe the language is wrong, wrong, but by tokenizing like this one person in the culture, that's, that's a flawed way to go about learning diverse musics as well. Right. But I think like with anything, if you 
have that conversation with the student ahead of time or even with the person in the room and be like, this is this one person's perspective. This is this one person's experience within mariachi music. There's many other mariachi musicians out there. Here is one person who's here to share their knowledge. You know, I think kids can get that. And I think that shouldn't, I guess this idea of like, you know, hesitancy and culture bears makes me nervous because then that might make music teachers say, well, forget it. I'm not going to do it at all. And then we're not doing anything. Yeah. And that, and that's my, and after I have that thought process, that's my takeaway is like, well, then does it happen at all? Right. 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 So anyway. um, Yeah. To me, like the big aha of this chapter was when they were talking about this idea of being careful about community partners, not reinforcing like power hierarchies and things and having Mm -hmm. it like, for example, if you have your kids go and perform at a venue in the community, not having it be like, here are my kids performing for you, you new sad people who need us to do this for you, but have it be a two-way street. And I love this idea they talked about in some of the vignettes too, about intentionally planning time. If you're going to have your kids go and perform somewhere, then intentionally plan an hour of time where your students mingle with the people and talk to the people, whether it's at a homeless shelter or um, a nursing home facility or any type of of anywhere in the community because yes going and performing for the community is great but really interacting and having those one-on-one interactions is so much better and then of course the whole thing that I kept thinking was oh it'll be it'll be nice when we can do that again someday like it was talking about like teaching your kids about appropriate physical contact and like teaching them how to shake hands and I'm like oh my gosh that's like the opposite of what we're doing right now in the world and it was hard to read that yeah right and and I really I mean I'm you know that all, all of the, my, my not complaints, but my concerns, of course, doesn't say don't do anything at all. I really like the emphasis of that verb of musicking. Mm-hmm. And it's not just here, we are the performers and there you are. It's like this shared experience and, and the emphasis on learning as much as you can about your community, who the school is named after and the connections there and how that's really powerful for those students who are there. And I appreciated all that, but I don't know. Does there always a but? I, I just, I'm <laughs> yeah. like, how does that really, how do I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd have to sit down and be extremely intentional about how I would go about doing that. I don't know. I, well, and then when we cha- talk about the next chapter, we'll talk about, okay, is it a fitting in thing? Is it a complete paradigm shift? Because in the next chapter, there's more of talk of, okay, it's a complete paradigm shift, right? right. So at this point, I'm thinking, how do I, I, I'm pretty happy with my pedagogy yeah. at this point. So how do I enhance that? How do I add repertoire to that? But. Okay. But before you know, we stray away from community, I don't no, we're not bring up community. Yeah. Another thing that struck me was, and again, because I teach at two schools with very different population, I was thinking about my homeschool. And like when I think about the community surrounding my homeschool, there's definitely like an identifiable community aspect of like what a lot of my families are going through and what a lot of their home likes lives are like and what brings a lot of them together and to our school but then i started thinking about my second school my traveling school which is more suburbia more white suburbia and i was really struggling when i was thinking about well what is that school's community like other than like if i wanted my kids to get out in the community and go perform somewhere for example I, the only thing I can think of is like a strip mall, <laughs> but then it's like, am I shorting that, that population of kids? Do I just not know them well enough? And I'm guessing it's the latter because I've only been there a year and it was a COVID year and I'm only there one third of my time. So not to make well, excuses, well, but that's Could it be that that is their community, the strip mall? Well, this, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying like, to be disparaging. I'm not trying to be insulting, but like, but that's you know. what I mean. Yeah. Like there's no, like close by like cultural center there's no like hub that i'm aware of i mean right but the olive garden might be where people gather carrie well i know but this is what i'm saying do people (laughs) gather at the olive garden they go eat there with their family like 
I guess to me, I'm thinking of like parks and festivals is probably where where people would gather. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm posing this to you because you <laughs> you've taught in suburbia for for a little longer than I have. And I guess yeah. I was wondering for you when you were reading this, like what thoughts of community came up for you? And I know you teach in a diverse community. I'm not trying to short, like, like de-emphasize that, but it's just more like geographically, the community in suburbia is so different than a more quote unquote urban area or yeah. even in a um, rural area. Suburbia just has a totally different vibe and at first i my my reaction and i live in suburbia so it's like i just feel like we're kind of like void of community that sounds horrible i don't but, know what i'm trying to but, say but but it, that that's the the same argument that people use when they talk about well i don't have any culture i'm just a white person that that's right. kind of the same kind of well you do it's just that you haven't really because it's the dominant thing going on, right? Because right. the suburban neighborhood is the dominant place setting that we think of when we think of elementary schools. We just haven't bothered to go, well, what, where is, where is the, what is the culture? Like yeah. what's going on? And maybe it's a lot more insulary. I don't know, from family to family. I do know that I have like pockets of, um, of students who are, uh, you know, make up and uh, some of the diverse population of my school. Um, and I don't have an incredibly diverse population, but we do have some like pockets of um, families that came from the Ukraine, right? Which is interesting that they all settled in the same area. So there's right. like that kind of thing going on. But as, but, and also I know that we have families who have been there multi-generations within the neighborhood. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm teaching, let's, let's come clean. I'm teaching kids of kids I taught <laughs> at the same school. That is to be celebrated, Tanya, not to be. No, I know. It just is like, it's a little weird, but yeah. So I think it's just a matter of like, how do you, how do you figure that out? I, when yeah. I think specifically during this chapter, like you said, what do you think about your community? There, one of the characteristics of the my homeschool community is that they're a little, I don't know how I should say it, tight-lipped, like not, um, they, they seem less enthusiastic to gather and, uh, um, than than other communities I've been in mm. it's I don't know it's interesting they're they're kind of like families seem to keep to themselves a lot I don't know yeah it's interesting but I don't live there right. and the other thing is that it it kind of and I guess it's okay but it blurs the line for any teacher between teacher and families and I'm a little bit at odds of, with that because for ever since I started teaching, I've had this like understanding of like, okay, I'm a teacher in this community and there are certain um, activities that uh, I shouldn't be doing in the neighborhood. I, I'm not like I'm like, that sounds horrible. Like I don't live in the community, right? Um, when me and my husband started dating and he was the art teacher and I was the music teacher, we had a rule of no PDA, no public display of affection <laughs> in the city where we taught. Cause right. we just thought, you know, that that's kind of like, not, I mean, we're married now, so, you know, it's yeah, different yeah. now, but I didn't think that was a big, um, thing to sacrifice. Right. Right. And it's not like we were making out on the streets or anything, <laughs> but yeah, garden. I just, I don't, I don't know. I just have this idea of there's a little bit of decorum that should be maintained if you are teaching staff in a building. Right. And that, I don't know, like hanging out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang out and be chummy and friends with families of kids that I teach. I don't know. But I've always your, been taught it's inappropriate. That's not. Yeah. But your kids went to school there too. So how did you navigate that? 
this is like a whole nother podcast, but like when your kids were going to school, there was a little bit of overlap there because you were yes. also parents of yeah. kids. Yeah. Yeah. There was some awkwardness. Yeah. A little bit, but not, not too bad. Right. It was just like, oh, you know what? You can call me Tanya. You don't have to call me Miss Lejeune, you know? Right mother of so-and-so student that I teach, like, since we're both at this party together, like uh, for our children. Um, But there wasn't, I mean, honestly, my children, they, they didn't get really close to the neighborhood kids of the school. That was hard because you weren't living there. Because we weren't living there. So there you go. Well, yeah, it's just this whole chapter just brought up those feelings of like, obviously, this is something I mean, for me, I know I need to do more of. Like I said, especially at my traveling school, just because I'm not there as often and I've only been there a year and I just need to understand a little bit better. Like, I really don't know what those kids like do on the weekends. And it's not that I'm going to show up at their baseball game, but at least to be aware (laughs) that they are playing baseball, you know, is is really the first step. And I I am aware of what's going on in that. They're playing soccer. That's what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. I think my my school is big into, yeah, weekend sports for sure. Which that in itself is a community because my kids have played sports and that that's a thing for sure. Right. But as far as like specifically different music styles and like, uh, and, and, I will say that there have been times where I've been aware of some different musics that are going on and I have invited them to come to school. We had a family and dad was a bagpiper in a Scottish Mm -hmm. band and he came a few times and did a demonstration and, and it was really wonderful. And it was just so unique and, and such a different experience and, I love the bagpipe. I think it's a glorious sound. I know not everybody's with me on that, but anyway, <laughs> so, you know, we have had here and there, like I, another thing I've done is um, for concerts, I will say, okay, the last song, I always try to include one or two, but usually it's just one piece that is going to be, this is where we're going to invite our audience to sing with us. Right. Uh Yeah. And in years past, it's been, we're going to invite our audience to sing. And also I put out an email, let's say it's fourth grade and say, okay, for our last song, we're going to do this land is your land. And I know that there's some issues with that song. And I'm saying this because this is the reality of, you know, what I've really done in the past is, okay, we're playing this land is your land. I'm going to be playing guitar. I'm a schlocky guitar player. Um, but I can handle this land is your land. And then I say, Hey, anyone in the community, parents, uncles, aunts, anyone who plays guitar, if you want to play along, then please let me know via email. I'll send you the chord chart. And when it comes time, you just come up to the front or not. Maybe you don't even like, you know, it's not like a performance where you have to feel like you're under pressure, but, and that, and that's been successful. Like I've gotten a couple of takers each time. So it's like strumming away, everyone is singing and that's been a a great thing. And I need to do more of that, I guess. Yeah, totally. Well, before we move on to the conclusion chapter, are there any specific questions for discussion that you want to talk about from chapter seven? Oh, Tanya? well, I was looking at number five on page 129. Throughout this book, we have referred culturally, spe- we have re- referenced culturally specific music styles. What are the barriers that music teachers face when including diverse music in their curriculum? And we touched on this just now a little bit is, you know, finding out about those things. Mm-hmm. And I think also making sure that you are doing it in a way that's not going to be offensive um, to the families whose music it is, right? There's a lot of talk about cultural appropriation and that's that's an important talk to have. But I I definitely know colleagues of mine who are afraid to do more diverse music because they don't want to offend anybody. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think also, and they they talk about this in the conclusions, I know we're going to talk about it in a minute, but like this whole vicious cycle of like, 
you teach the way you were taught. You teach mm-hmm. the music you grow up learning. And I fit that mold of growing up, starting piano lessons young, then playing cello and then singing in choir. So my whole musical world revolves around, you know, Eurocentric Western European classical canon of music, you know, and that being, and I didn't learn jazz. And I, I mean, <laughs> other than a little dabble of musical theater, (laughs) everything I did was classically based. So I don't know about jazz and I don't know about quote unquote world musics because it was never taught to me. And that's not an excuse, that's just the reality. Um, My undergraduate music education was all classical Western European music. So I think, you know, that cycle exists and we need to recognize it and try to disrupt it. But I think that's the reality for most (laughs) music educators who are teaching right now well and that does lead us right into chapter eight are we going there now can yeah let's do it yeah because it is this vicious cycle and there's even a diagram of it yeah and um i've i've been thinking about this a lot um even before reading this because this is apparent like it's more and more obvious how it doesn't fit our needs uh, in society. The idea of like music education and school music that you hear at school and that you learn at school is completely detached from music that is in everyone's everyday, everyday lives, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's th- that made me very like, I don't know, just kind of despondent. Like, okay, yeah. I, I understand this and I understand that there's a problem and I just don't know how to help disrupt the system. And I know I'm part of the problem because like you said, my undergrad training and my graduate training was all Western European classical canon, all of that stuff. And yeah, what do we do? The sad thing is that does all of that really Um, And it does tamper down, stamp out inclusion of people who are extremely musical, but just not in this tradition that we're used to. Right. Right. And I, I don't know what the answer is. And I've, I've come up against this, like personally, um, when there's talk about like rap music or hip hop, I am not qualified to teach anything about rap music or hip hop. I, it's not music um that i'm really familiar with you know save like just a tiniest bit like i don't there's a rich history and culture there and i'm not the person to do it i'm not the person to do it because i don't have the knowledge but i'm also not the person to do it because it's it's not music that i was like steeped in from an age it's not my music to so the, there you go with the cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation it's like i can definitely appreciate this but um i, I don't know what to do about something like that right or mar let's talk mariachi music right? right same thing i'm not qualified to do that but is anyone going to be qualified to do that if we keep you know going back to this like well they're educated at the university for their undergrad and in undergrad, you're reading traditional Western notation and you need to pass proficiency tests on the keyboard and you need to have a major instrument and you should have some uh, songs in your repertoire that are from the, the canon of, you know, fill in the blank instrument. And then if you're doing all that, you can't be steeped in other musics. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that, that, you know, not just with styles of music, but I think the thing that we fail to bring up in music education when we talk about all of the things that we should be including is that you can't do it all. Something's got to give. Right. If you choose to play Bach fugues, that is me. That means that you're not going to be spending that same amount of time getting really deep into African high life music. Like Mm -hmm. you can't do it all. You just can't. So what do we choose? That's what I'm kind of like, well, what do we choose? Yeah. And how do we change that paradigm? And I'm part of the old guard. So maybe people like me just need to go away and there needs to be a shift. But then again, it's people like me and you who have been in the profession a long time 
who might be in a position to make those changes. Well, not us, because we're not university professors, but, you know, we might have a little bit more influence than like a first year teacher. Well, this is true. Yeah. We but were so, recognizing like, the problem. And I mean, I, I'm not trying to like put us up on some ridiculous pedestal, but I'm saying just by us reading this book and having these conversations and having this podcast, that's one way of us affecting change. Obviously, we both know and recognize that we have to make changes within our own classroom. And that's something we're working on as well. I guess the point is, like to not get so <laughs> sad about the whole thing and say, well, forget it. I'm just going to keep doing the same things. I don't know what else to do. Like we are doing things differently, Tanya. And I think I know. we can give each other a little bit of credit for that. But I know. also I say just, there is still and so much more to do. We're not. I just, just I just want some solid actionable steps. And I there know. are some, like there's some good lists of things at the end of many of the chapters look like key considerations for building school and community par partnerships, right? Yeah. And there's some actionable uh, uh, items, but they're still, they're still kind of, I don't know, general in scope. So I kind of feel like what I really need to do is sit down and say, here is what I can do right now, this year, this semester, this month, this week. Like I need to be much more intentional in my actions and have very specific things to to go after because otherwise it's like just a bunch of ideas that I think are great but I'm not really doing anything right well and I think what gave me hope too reading this book is it sounds like there are some change makers out there like when they were talking about like there's this group of of collegiate level folks out there who are like they wrote like a manifesto like oh saying, I know like, I was like here's a call out or maybe we'll say a call in like yeah. here is a charge but and it's, they list them yeah yeah it's happening and i think you know i often get that becomes my default is like well i'm trying to do so much at my level but if it's not happening at the secondary level and if it's not happening at the collegiate academic level then then forget it why am i but i i know that's not true i know there's lots of people out there in all levels of music education who are seeing and recognizing a need for change and are like you said, calling in everyone to make that change. So that part did give me a little bit of hope. <laughs> yeah, but it has to be like, like the, it's emphasized in this chapter over and over again. It has to be like everybody. It has to be, we are all going to make this change. It's decided, let's do it. Because otherwise we keep propagating this same hidden logical chain underlying our music practice, which I'd like to read from page 134 about um, that was quoted about uh, that the messaging that we're giving to students. Okay, number yeah. one, our music, which may be classical music, marching band music, show band music, choral music, or big band jazz, but rarely impro imp improvised or self-composed music, which is difficult to control, is the only real music. So we're giving this messaging. Or and number two, you do not like or are not proficient in our or or are not interested in our music. We are telling the students. Mm -hmm. Number three, therefore, you are not musical, which is just horrible, but understandable. That yeah, I can totally see that. Oh well, this the student is not musical in my room with this music that I'm teaching them. Therefore, they're not musical. Like that's just we're we're cutting ourselves off from all the other ways of musicking because it's not our expertise, and it's not our expertise because we're teaching how we were taught, and we were we're teaching how we were taught because the people who taught us were taught that way. So uh -huh. it's just this self-perpetuating, you know. Um, but I don't know. Like I said. I don't know how to, how to, I don't know how you go about the greater good. I mean, there's this book and right. when did this book come, came, come out and what specific actionable steps have we heard from NAFME or the AOSA or OAKE or fill in the blank? Like, mm -hmm. have we heard any big, well, because Carrie, honestly, the other thing that I kept thinking back as I was reading through the last two chapters is like, 
this really does fit with Kodai, Kodai's vision. 100%. About music. When we talk about the musical mother tongue, right? I know that my the Kodai students that I teach in level one, they're like, they, they get a little tied up in knots with that term. That phrase, yeah. It feels, I know that at this point in wherever we are at, that that, that kind of feels weird that to say musical mother tongue. Mm-hmm. But um, it's really just about who are the who are the people in your neighborhood? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and what's the musics, and that's what we should be doing. And I know, like, I'm always, always preaching that. Listen, Kodai wasn't alive in the 21st century. Yeah, Kodai didn't know about the internet. Kodai didn't understand. I mean, not that he didn't understand. It just wasn't a. Th- it wasn't a thing, you know, he was coming from the early 1900s hungry and the politics there, you've got to look at it from that context. And when we're talking about the musical mother tongue in today's terms, we're talking about lots of different cultures. Mm-hmm. We're talking about lots of different cultures within the 30 kids in your classroom in front of you. Yeah. Right. So that's another question. It's like, well, whose culture do we choose, right? And if you are really true to this idea of the song literature and the music literature driving the pedagogy, right? And and you know, the mariachi use this tonality and you've got, I don't know, six kids who are from that tradition, but then I've got my kids from the Ukraine who mm-hmm. might be heavily that culture is heavily influenced with this tonality. And then I've got my, you know, suburban white children, like, where do you go? And what do you do? And this is also assuming that just because those kids might be from the Ukraine does not mean that their families are heavily uh, connected to that, to that music. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's all these things that come into play that you go, okay, so what do I do? So what, what do I do? Cause I can't do all of it. I can't of say course. we're going to start with me, Ray Doe, and we're going to start with Dory me and we're going to learn this extended scale and we're going to learn these rhythms and we're only going to do it orally, but we really should learn how to read it. But what are we going to use to read? Uh, you know, that's like, you have to land somewhere is the problem. You have to land somewhere. Yeah. With what you're teaching. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear you because I've had this issue. I mean, most of the schools that I've taught in have been dual language schools with almost an equal breakdown of white kiddos and Latino kiddos and Latino kiddos from many different countries, too. Right. So right. then it's like, where do I go? How do I? And I mean, I have defaulted to a traditional Kodai sequence for literacy. And I think I'm still like I'm there. That's kind of what I've I've had to go with is like pick a sequence and go with it and I can find, you know, songs from from different Spanish speaking countries that fit the mold. I can find so me songs from, you know, Cuba and I can find, you know, Ta and Titi chants from Mexico. So I can find things that support the curriculum that I'm choosing. But is but, that just lip service to that at that point? I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to criticize you. No, yeah. But I'm aware of like Am I just giving lip service to this culture and we're not really embracing it to the extent that we need to be doing like, well, right. And then then there's this whole issue of, you know, yeah, it's become othering. It's like, here's here's the traditional quote unquote songs, which, you know, for for a lot of people would be songs and chants in English from either a U.S. or um, Western European tradition, but then we're othering this, these other songs. These are mm-hmm. like the, and, and they talk about that in, in this book too, that it's not just a matter of just these add-on things. You can't just add on some world music and add on a mariachi band and check exactly. that box and now I'm done. That that culturally responsive teaching goes deeper than that. Um, so yeah, it's a big thing. <laughs> Well, and then, yeah. and then you put on top of that, like this whole need as just a teacher professional, as a, a music teacher professional is like, do I have the, the bandwidth? Do I have 
the resources to help educate me towards these other, the here I say other again, do I, do, am I even able to find the education that I need to do what I need to do for my students that I'm teaching? And do I have that energy and that drive and that frankly finances like to really go after that and transform my teaching. I do a lot of PD. I still do a lot of PD and, you know, I'm, and I know you are also doing all of these different things and we read and, and try to stay educated, not because we need to do it for our teacher certification, but because we're interested in music education. Right. And I'm, I'm very interested in all kinds of facets of music education. However, you know, I still haven't gotten myself over to a world music pedagogy course. Not that that's going to solve all my problem, all my problems either, but like the finances, the travel, the, the time from my family that like all of these other things are a real thing. And I, I don't know. Now I feel like I'm just making excuses for not, no, not doing the thing, but I'm just like, okay, I know what my limitations are. I know what I would like to do. I know I feel like there is an urgency to be more culturally relevant. Now, tell me how exactly to do that. But well, here's where I'm going to, I'll get a little Pollyanna ish for you, Tanya. Oh, please go. Yeah. Like I, uh, school, I, I, we report back officially one week from today, and then students start the following week, right? Mm-hmm. And part of me has just been kind of like, oh, I needed longer summer, I needed more time, especially after last year and all this stuff. But here's here's what I'm thinking. When it comes to like this book and all the things that seem too big, every time I think this seems too big, I stop and I think of my room and I think of my students who are gonna come in my room and they just wanna come in and they wanna just have fun and feel joy of music. And I mean, I know that I have a lot of work to do to make sure that's a goal for every single one of my children, but I will say, like, I feel that when my kids come in my room, I feel like that they are genuinely, genuinely happy to be there. Do we have some rough days? Of course. Do we have some kiddos who have days where they're not there? Yes. Are there days that I'm not there? Of course. But, you know, COVID restrictions aside, I just, that to me is where it always comes back to you. And I guess that's kind of the point of the book, too, is like, just, think of your own students and think of, you know, how I'm going to get to know them or how I'm going to build a community within my classroom first. And then some of these bigger issues don't quite seem so big. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's what it all boils down to is who are the people in front of you? What do they need? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so that makes it more manageable is like, okay, yes, I'm thinking about, how can I disrupt the system and all these things? But I'm also thinking about, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow with my kids? Well, yeah, but, but then, okay, again, I'm not trying to throw, I don't want to default to, <laughs> well, I'm going to do what I've always done because. But uh, I don't think you easier. will. This is what I'm saying. I mean, I, I can say this because I know you, Tanya, and mm. I know that you have been including a lot more SEL in your classroom and mindfulness in your classroom. And, you know, you're not the person who goes to a PD or reads something and then never implements an ounce of it into your classroom. You are the, I'm going to try this differently this year. I'm going to try this differently this year. And I guess maybe that's the message that I'm trying to remind each other, but also our listeners out there is you can teach old dogs new tricks. And I mean me, (laughs) because I mean, yeah, we're looking at this is year 21 for me coming in. And for you, it's like 26. Yeah. So, I mean, we are always trying to constantly grow and change and try new things. And it doesn't mean completely revamping your entire curriculum and throwing everything out the window, but you can try small changes and you can act small changes that you say, Oh, this really worked well. I'm going to keep doing this. Or, you know, this didn't work so well. I need to find more information about X, Y, Z. I think, I think it's okay to be overwhelmed, but also take those baby steps at the same time. Right. Well, of course, I think, also, in addition to all of that, um, I think this is another one of those, this has led me to more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. And it's back to that whole idea of be comfortable with 
not having closure. (laughs) And I have to say that us Kodai people, that's not really where we, (laughs) it's not really our comfortable place. Us, Us Kodai people, we're like, ooh, is there a sequence? Is it color coded? Is it on a spreadsheet? I love it. That's that's a little, you know, let's just be honest about that. As, as Kodai people are kind of like, I, I I want the details and I'm going to line them up and away we go, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. And that yeah. doesn't work for this kind of stuff, but. No. So if you are like Tanya and I, and this book for you has brought up more questions and you just want to keep talking we are going to provide you with that opportunity to chat with us about this book or other things too that might have popped into your brain um so this saturday if you're listening to this in real time this saturday which would be august 7th 2021 we are going to have a live music teacher coffee talk book club meeting on zoom um at three o'clock mountain standard time from three o'clock to four o'clock no longer than an hour because we have other things to do too. (laughs) But we would love for you to pop on and talk to us. So we're going to post that Zoom link on our Facebook page. So make sure you are following us on Facebook and you will see that link pop up. Um, We should have that posted by Thursday. Um, So yeah, pop on if you want to talk about this book or if you just want to come and just say hi or if you have some back to school questions, we can talk that too. It doesn't necessarily have to be about the book. But but we would love to also talk about the book, too. If you have questions or while you were listening, you were shouting things into the cosmos, then you want to come shout them at us. Um, yeah, please. <laughs> please come shout at us. <laughs> come on our Zoom link. You are all invited. We hope to see you there. Three o'clock Mountain Standard Time on Saturday, August 7th, 2021. It is time for our CODA section, where we each recommend something we've been enjoying uh, for our summer vacation. So, Tanya, go for it. Okay. Um, My husband and I happened upon a documentary on Netflix, which actually came out in 2018, which is very... Anyway, it's called This Changes Everything, and... It really uh, features Gina Davis on empowering women in Hollywood, and um, it's 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 really very fascinating. This this documentary, it's not awesome. It's it's good. It's flawed. It it kind of gets off the rails sometimes, but it's really all about like um, female representation in Hollywood in movies and in television shows. And what I did not know though is that Gina Davis, the actress that she has a foundation that did research where they actually took scripts from Hollywood movies and they counted like, how many lines does this female character have? How many lines does this male character have? So what's the percentage of, you know, visibility for a a white character, a white male character versus a white female character versus a white uh, or a person of minority, a woman of minority. Like it's just, it was fascinating stuff because um, big surprise, there's been an imbalance of- um, What? You've what? got to be kidding me. I know. <laughs> so, I mean, I really spent the whole tw- first 20 minutes of watching this documentary going, oh, really? Oh, tell me more. Oh, yeah. really? Who knew? But I mean, it. But the, the the juicy bits were like, wow, they really sat down and did the research, and they go into like talking about female directors and how there were four of them who put forth a lawsuit and the specific laws that protect like female directors from losing work for no apparent reason and wow. the patriarchy's hold over well, everything, but Hollywood in particular. And um, it was just, it was, it was very interesting. And I really liked that a lot of it was backed up with research. And I have such a new respect for Gina Davis because I didn't know that she had this second career where she was actually funding and putting together all of this research. So it was fascinating. This changes everything. Um, 
like I said, it's not a perfect documentary. Like, like there was issues as far as like some duh moments, but I don't know from maybe for some people, it it will be uh, illuminating even in the first 20 minutes. Sure. And what do you watch this on? What? Uh, This is Netflix. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Carrie? What would you like to share? Okay, so I watched a show, kind of binge watched a show this summer because that's what summer's for, right? Is exactly and laundry and binge watching. Yeah, yes. but this is not a can do laundry while you watch because you have to actually watch it. So, um, I watched Perry Mason, the reboot of Perry Mason. So, not to be confused with the show that was back. When was that show out originally? I, my like, dad watched Perry Mason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this is the dark twisty reboot of Perry Mason that is on Mm. HBO Max and of course I heard about it on my favorite murder like probably a year or so ago but I didn't have HBO Max so I finally watched it this summer and oh it's good Um, there's one season that's out so far I believe they're coming out with a second season but um, there are some just really great actors in this John Lithgow is in it and he is so so good um lily taylor do you remember lily taylor oh yes oh yes yes from you know dogfight uh, is the movie i remember her from oh i was thinking of um oh gosh see i'm so bad with actors names she was in that say wasn't she in like say anything wasn't she the friend of the guy who holds up the boom box and say anything yes she had her guitar and she sang lots of songs about her ex so she plays like the mother of this girl who's like a kind of like an evangelical preacher prophet type of person and she plays like the mother of this girl so very different role than she normally plays and then that girl is played by tatiana maslany maslany who um, she plays this character, Sister Alice McKeegan, who you just can't take your eyes off her in the show. She is just so fantastic and kind of don't know what's going through her head. And it's kind of, you know, a little otherworldly, creepy, mystical, religious stuff going on. It reminds me of the show Carnival. Did you ever watch Carnival, Tanya? No, that looked too creepy for me. Yeah. So it's kind of that same thing. And it's all set in the 1930s. So it's very similar styling. But anyways, you know, Perry Mason was like a private investigator who becomes like a self-taught lawyer and he's um, defending this woman who's um, basically accused of being involved in the murder of her own child. So it's, Oh my, it's pretty dark and twisty, but it's awesome. And it's really good. And if you like that kind of stuff and you have HBO max, check it out. Cool. We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to music teacher coffee talk. Show notes can be found at musicteachercoffeetalkpodcast.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. In our next episode, we'll be talking about Back to School 2021. Until next time, this is Tanya. And this is Carrie wishing you happy musicking.